The second chapter is a chapter about leaders, and it's the example of Paul the Apostle's leadership among this group. I was handed a little copy of something not too long ago called Unlikely Pastoral Candidates, and it's supposedly uh, a pastoral committee from a church that would be reviewing the Bible heroes and why they were not suited for the job of pastor. In fact, it says, the committee regrets to report that the candidates in question failed to meet our qualifications. First of all, Noah. Even though he's preached 120 years, this man has no converts. This indicates a credibility gap. Then there's Abram slash Abraham. We find it odd that he has two names. Is he using an alias? And if so, why? Also, we must question whether he is the head of his household or not. His wife laughs when God converses with him. Then there's Moses. Now, we were impressed with Moses, except for two severe problems. He's been known to lose his temper once in a while. Furthermore, he seems to have the necessary perseverance for preaching, but his stuttering and stammering would defy all speech therapy. David. David seems talented in writing and music and poetry, but we don't know if he can preach. Worse yet, he's had a few moral lapses. We couldn't have him as a pastor, but perhaps later he could be considered for a position as a minister of music. Isaiah. Now, there's a person who's thought of as one who is well, but it seems to be a serious PR problem. Imagine a preacher who, upon meeting God, instead of addressing him politely, says, Woe is me. If Isaiah greeted the people in our church that way, no one would ever feel welcome. Jeremiah. No, we need an upbeat preacher for our church, one who can make people happy. We feel unanimously that Jeremiah would be too depressing in any church position. Of course, he wrote the book of Lamentations, you remember. Then there's John the Baptist. Certainly he's a good preacher and he gets good results, but he dresses very strange. Worse than this lack of pulpit decorum, he eats very strangely. What if he were to bring a honey-dipped insect casserole to one of our potlucks? Then there's Peter. Peter seems to show leadership, but the last thing we need is a preacher who carries a sword around, takes off and goes fishing at the drop of a hat and smells like fish most of the time. Then there's Paul. Now, he's a great preacher, but he's very moving. That is, he's always moving here and moving there. How can he keep his mind on the ministry when he always wants to be somewhere else? Well, the truth of the matter is, as Paul the Apostle became the leader of the Thessalonian church, at least at the beginning, and several other churches. And in chapter 2, we get insight into the model minister, the model pastor. If chapter 1 describes the model church, then past, uh, chapter 2 describes the model of a church leader. I've got to say right at the beginning, I feel inadequate to discuss what a model minister is because I'm still learning. And uh, there's a lot for me to learn. However, the text is the text, and I can hide behind it, and we can expound on it this morning. Let me just say also at the beginning that leadership, contact, leadership is a hot topic these days. In magazines on airplanes, you can find seminars to go to, tapes to listen to, videos to purchase. I've even seen an interactive CD-ROM that you can plug into your computer, and it teaches you all about leadership. It's become a very important topic these days. Most of you in this room are not pastors, but 
all of us can glean lessons from this. And I'd like to broaden the application of this message to everyone, whether you're a missionary going out to a mission field sometime, uh, uh, whether you're a small group leader of a kinship or a special group within the church, or whether you're a husband leading a family. Or if you're just a plain old Christian, it will teach you how to act around people who are young in the faith and broaden our perspective as to what leadership is. And we've also got to say that good, godly leadership is needed today. The kind with integrity, honesty, humility, servant leaders are needed. The church is in need of them, and the community is in need of them. And that's not to say that leaders are to be perfect. In fact, one of the first things that needs to be said about leadership is the tendency of people to put leaders on pedestals. They do not belong there. And oftentimes, leaders don't put themselves there. Others do. And it's wrong to put a leader, either spiritual or not, on a pedestal because then you put him in a pass-or-fail situation. If he doesn't meet that little expectation, he's failed. If he does, he's passed. All of us have feet of clay, and we don't glow in the dark, and we don't have shinier halos than anybody else, and we don't belong on pedestals. But there are biblical principles for leadership. Now, this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12. And simply, we're going to look at the text this way. We're going to see, first of all, what a leader should not be, secondly, what a leader should be, and thirdly, what a leader wants others to be in terms of godly leadership, what a leader wants others to be. In verse 1 we read, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. For even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from deceit or uncleanness, nor was it in guile. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So, affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preached to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would have a walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. First of all, Paul tells us in the first few verses what a leader should not be. And for a little bit of background, remember that Paul went to Thessalonica and spent three Sabbaths consecutively speaking to them, discipling them, leading them. A riot broke out and he had to leave by night. He had to leave under the cover of being snuck out of town. And it seems that in the interim period of time, about a year, that a smear campaign had developed. Paul's critics emerged, came to the surface, and were making up stories about him. 
saying things like, he's insincere. He left you high and dry. If he really loved you, he'd have stayed around in the midst of the conflict. But Paul is like so many of these other charlatans that travel from town to town. He's a man of insincere motives. He's a weakling. And so Paul says, no, I'm not. That's not what it's like. In fact, we came in the midst of suffering. And so in the first few verses, this is what a leader should not be. First of all, a leader should not be a deceiver. Verse 3. For our exhortation did not come from deceit or uncleanness, nor was it in guile. That verse has a triple negative. That is, we weren't this, nor we were this, nor did we do this. He's trying to show the people that he himself is not like all of those other false teachers. Now, Paul spoke a lot about false teachers in many of his letters. In fact, one of the big problems of the early church were traveling, itinerant evangelists and ministers. They had become a plague on the church. They were trying to cash in on Christianity and take advantage of people. And they came in with deceit, with mixed impure motivations, trying to deceive the people so that they could gain support. But uh, he's saying, I didn't deceive you. One of the marks of a true spiritual leader is that he should be a lover of the truth. He should speak the truth, and he ought to live the truth. And Paul said, I did just that. Paul had very little toleration for those who claimed to be leaders of the church but did not love the truth. To the Corinthians, Paul said, We do not use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Because the early church was so filled with charlatans, traveling itinerant ministers who came from town to town, one of the first books ever written in the early church was called the Didache, the Didache, which is simply the teachings of the twelve apostles on church order. And it was a book, a manual on how to run a church. And a lot of this didache centered around how to handle people who come to your town from another town claiming to be a preacher of the gospel. And uh, part of the didache says, Let every apostle that cometh unto you be received as you would receive the Lord. And he shall stay one day, and if need be, the next day also. But if he stays three days, he's a false prophet. Because he's just trying to mooch off you. And when the apostle goeth forth, let him take nothing except bread until he reaches his lodging. But if he asks for money, he is a false prophet. Boy, would I like to resurrect some of these rules. No prophet that ordereth the table in the spirit shall eat of it, else he's a false prophet. See, the idea here is he comes forth and he claims to speak for God and he claims that God told us to have a nice big meal tonight so that he can eat of it. Thus saith the Lord... Prime rib shall be on the menu tonight. Well, fine. If you cook the prime rib and he eats of it, he's a false prophet because he did it for his own gain. But the point here is the Spirit of God isn't going to tell this guy what's for dinner. He's going to submit himself humbly if there's rice for dinner. It doesn't matter. If he that cometh is a passerby, help him as far as you can. But he shall not abide with you longer than two or three days unless there be a necessity. If he be minded to settle among you, and be a craftsman, let him work and eat. If he has no trade, according to your understanding, 
provide that he shall not be idle among you, being a Christian. If he will not do this, he is a Christ monger, and beware of such men. So one thing that a leader should not be is a deceiver. And Paul said, I wasn't a deceiver. I've lived honestly among you. And the second thing a leader should not be in verse 4 is a people pleaser. For he said, but we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Folks, it is tempting when you stand before people to water down the message, to taper down its strength, to compromise the truth in order to win the favor of men. Let's face it, everybody likes to be liked. And so in order to get the pats on the back to win the favor of men, sometimes people who speak for the Lord become people pleasers and will alter the message so that people will like them. But a pastor's concern should never be, hey, how did you like my message? But God, what did you think of it? Was it in truth and honesty? David in the Psalms prayed, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God. That ought to be his concern. And Paul was never one to reshape his message to get a pat on the back. Because Paul thought to do this would be to disqualify him from ministry. That's what he said in Galatians, in chapter 1. He said, am I now trying to win the approval of men or God? Am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be the servant of Christ. In the early church, we read as you thumb through the book of Acts that the leaders were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God with boldness. And some loved it and followed, and some didn't like it and got, they persecuted them. A problem in many churches today could be termed itching ear disease. We want to be amused or entertained or uh, we want others spoken about and other sins poked at, but don't mess with me. Uh, just give me something that feels good and that I can, uh, I can uh, laugh about or enjoy, but I don't want to deal with some hard issues. In fact, I read the testimony of one pastor who sort of proudfully admitted, he said, you know, in my sermons I used to say the Bible says this and thus saith the Lord, but I don't do that anymore because I found that people don't like it. So I give them my opinions now and they like that a whole lot better than if I say the Bible says. That's what Paul is speaking about here. I wasn't a man pleaser. In the 1800s, 1877 to be exact, Philip Brooks, a preacher among preachers, spoke to a young group at a meeting called the Yale Lectures. And he told this group these words, Courage is the indispensable requisite of any true ministry. If you are afraid of men and a slave to their opinions, then go and do something else. Go and make shoes to fit them. Go even and paint pictures that you know are bad, but which, which will suit their bad taste. Do not keep on all your life preaching sermons which will not say what God sent you to declare, but what they hired you to say. Be courageous. Be independent. Now, that's not to say that we're to go out of our way deliberately to make people mad in the name of the Lord. Or that doesn't give preachers a license to abuse their office. In fact, there are those who are so insecure they hide behind this. Don't argue with me, but saith the Lord. 
And that's a sign of insecurity and impure motivations. And then they'll say, well, I'm not trying to be a man-pleaser. Listen, that's not an excuse to abuse your authority. A true leader will be people-oriented, but he will not try to say things that pleases everybody at the expense of the truth. If he does that, it also shows an insecurity. Here's a rule of thumb. A rule of thumb when you lead a small group, a large church, a family, or anything is make decisions to please God, and you can be rest assured, if that's your motivation, to please the Lord. You'll make the right choice. You'll make the right choice with the people that you lead. Look at verse 5. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Flattery is the art of telling people exactly what they want to hear about themselves. Even if it's not true, it is not communication, it is manipulation. There's a difference between flattery and true encouragement and praise. Flattery is that you say something to butter them up because you want something out of them or you want them to do something your way. You have ulterior motives. True encouragement is absent of ulterior motives. I'm just saying this to edify you. I mean nothing. I want nothing out of it for myself. I'm not trying to control your decision. So Paul says we did not use flattery. He was not a people pleaser. A third thing in verse 6 that a leader should never be is a dictator. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. You see, Paul was an apostle of Christ. He was chosen. He was commissioned. He was on a different spiritual level than the rest of those people. But he never pulled rank. He never pulled rank. He never said, hey, you salute me when I come into the room, okay? Call me Reverend Dr. something. He never pulled rank. He was gentle with them. He didn't abuse his authority. You can be authoritative without being an authoritarian. In fact, let's face it, we need, all of us, authority in our lives. One of the principal ailments of modern America is the absence of authority. Authority with integrity, and I'm talking on a personal level now as well, is that there are no moral fibers left. There's no absolutes that people live by. We're producing a generation of aimless people without any authority at all. Hey, whatever you're into, man, it doesn't matter, just as long as you're happy. That's sort of the philosophy of the age. We need authority. Or else we'll become like the ancient children of Israel, where it says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's a story of a uh, naval captain who was aboard his vessel, and as he was sailing straight ahead in the evening, he saw a light in front of him, and he told his men, signal that vessel and tell them, command them to alter their course 10 degrees south. And so the lights flashed. The message was sent. The message came back, no, you alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain got a little angry at that because after all, he's a captain on a battleship. He says, uh, flash them again and tell them, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a captain. The message came back, alter your course 10 degrees north. I'm a seaman third class. Now the captain was really outraged. This fledgling is telling him what to do. 
He says, flash them again and say, alter your course, I'm a battleship. Came back the reply, no, alter your course, I'm a lighthouse. (laughs) If we do not have fixed values and fixed markers of authority, we will crash. And people love to follow leaders who inspire confidence, who know where they're going. But that doesn't give any leader the right to become a little despot or a furor spouting off orders because of their insecurity. There was a person like that in the early church, it seems. In the book of Third John, he spoke about a guy named Diotrephes who loved to have the preeminence among them. He refused to show hospitality to anybody else outside the church, and he would kick people out of the church who showed hospitality to other people. He was so insecure, he didn't want any competition. Just kick them all out. He wanted full allegiance because he was so insecure, he loved to have the preeminence. But Paul said, he shouldn't be a dictator. Now let's look at all in the next several verses at what a leader should be. We've seen what a leader shouldn't be. And keep something in mind. Paul's using himself as the example. That's that's quite a thing. He's showing himself as a godly leader among the people, and he will show us that leaders have a higher level of responsibility and accountability and a higher standard. Not that we're better, not that we have shinier halos. The idea is that if you lead people, you have a higher standard of accountability before the Lord. That's what James said. He said, do not be many teachers because you will receive the stricter judgment. I heard of a court case that was brought before a judge, uh, a lawyer and a high school dropout. This is not a lawyer joke, by the way. I'm not leading to something. It's, it's a case that I heard happened. Uh, these guys had been chums from high school. One became a lawyer. One didn't become really anything. He dropped out of high school. Both were involved in a, in a crime ring of thievery. They got caught. The judge sentenced the high school dropout to a year of prison, and uh, sentenced the lawyer to three years of prison because he said the lawyer should live at a higher standard of the law because he's someone who's been studied in the law. That makes sense. You're held to a higher standard. So let's look and see what a leader should be. First of all, he ought to be a faithful steward. Verse 4. As we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak. Paul saw the gospel as a sacred trust. In other words, I'm a trustee. I'm a steward. This is precious stuff that I'm sharing. And I have to be a faithful steward of what God has given me. And so I've been entrusted, even so I speak. A mark of a true leader is that he is faithful to proclaim the truth. He'll speak the word of God plainly and accurately and faithfully. And because there were so many deceivers in the early church and still are today, is the need for strong uh, leadership when it comes to speaking the Word of God faithfully. Let me read to you 2 Timothy chapter 4, not the whole chapter, but he's writing to Timothy and he says, Preach the Word. Listen to this. Preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Faithfulness 
to the truth is what God requires. He will require nothing less than faithfulness to all the truth. In ancient Israel, there were a group of so-called prophets who were unfaithful to the truth. And God said, Woe unto the false shepherds of Israel who feed themselves rather than feeding the flock and taking care of them. In the book of Hosea, God said, My people are dying because of lack of knowledge. There was a famine for the word of God. You cannot grow spiritually without a steady diet of the word of God and a spiritual leader who's raising other people up. One of his first principal characteristics is that he's a faithful steward to present it all. Last night as we were having dinner, we all sat down and we had a, a nice dinner. We had soup, pasole, and we had uh, uh, carrots, we had celery, and right behind us on the counter, my wife had baked this sheet of brownies, and that smell pervaded the entire house. While you were eating, you could smell those brownies. So it was an incentive, I thought, for Nathan to finish all of his meal. Now, the celeries, the carrots, the pasole weren't all that good to him. In fact, he said, I'm done. I'm full. <laughs> That's the operative word. I'm full. Okay, you're full. No brownies. Oh, no, no, no. I'd like to have brownies. He didn't want the carrots, he didn't want the celery, he didn't want the soup, but boy, he wanted those brownies. But he needs it all, doesn't he? He can't just live on brownies all the time, can he? He won't grow up very healthy, will he? Well, there's many Christians who will not endure sound carrots and celery. They want the brownies. They don't want the pure doctrine of the Word. They want just something that makes them feel good. They pat on the back. Don't talk too much about Jesus, God, requirements, sin. Just... Pass out over that. No, Paul said, I'm a faithful steward. I've been entrusted with it. Even so, we speak. To me, this is very, very fundamental. I took a course in California, and I had an instructor named Dr. Nat Van Cleve who was speaking to us. He said, if you ever become a pastor of a church, and let's say you have 100 people in your church, if you come to the pulpit and you are not prepared you will have wasted a hundred hours of God's time if you speak to them for an hour. That never has left me. That's made an impact on my life. Come prepared. A man came to Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon had a huge church in Victorian England. This pastor had a small church. and He said, Mr. Spurgeon, I don't have a very big church. I only have 80 people. Spurgeon quickly said, I think 80 people's enough to stand before God and give an account on Judgment Day, don't you? It's not the size, it's the faithfulness of being a steward of God. Uh, look at verse 1 and 2. Part of being faithful is being willing to suffer. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Later on, Paul writes to the Corinthians. He's writing from Corinth, this letter. But later on, he'll write to the Corinthians. And he'll say, now, you guys remember when we came to Macedonia? We were hassled on every side. Inwardly, there were fears. And outwardly, there were conflicts at every turn. The pastor that I sat under for years, Pastor Chuck Smith in Costa Mesa, California, has said a few times that he felt it his God-given responsibility when young men came to him and said, I want to be a pastor. He said, I kind of felt it's my uh, duty to discourage them as much as I can. And when he's asked why, he says, because if I can discourage them with a few words, 
right off the bat, they don't belong in the ministry. There'll be enough real discouragements that'll take them out later on. There's wisdom to that. It's not always easy. Hey, it's a blast. I never am going to complain. I love doing what I'm doing. It's an awesome privilege, responsibility. It's also a blast. But there are behind-the-scenes things that happen. Uh, we've moved to New Mexico. I look like the Beverly Hillbillies. I had this Datsun truck. Things were hanging out of it. We were putting oil in every hundred miles. It was very humorous. We were newlyweds. We didn't know anybody in town. It was hard. There were satanic attacks. People see the large church and go, ooh, awesome, successful. Well, it hadn't always been like this. And neither is that really even principle to us. There have been those times where that group of Satan worshipers, you remember, called the church to threaten the lives of my family and myself to kill us. We had a guy walk through the back door one time, pull out a handgun, wanted to find that preacher to shoot him. And luckily there was a couple ushers that grabbed him and hauled him outside and called the police. A lot of fun. Charles Spurgeon said, If you plan to be lazy, there are plenty of avocations in which you will not be wanted, but above all, you are not wanted in the Christian ministry. The man who finds the ministry an easy life will also find that it brings a hard death. Staying faithful can mean suffering, and part of the suffering may just be being faithful to the Word of God. If you just preach the Word of God, you'll get enough suffering, because there will be people who hear it and won't like it. I've had people say, how dare you say Jesus is the only way to heaven? I didn't say it. I'm just telling you what he said. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he will never see the kingdom of heaven. And so, first of all, a faithful steward is what a minister or a leader should be. Now look over at verse 6. Secondly, he should be like a gentle mother, not only a faithful steward. Nor did we seek glory from men either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But, notice this, we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So, affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. I think that is a good description of a mother. Labor and toil. For laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. He ought to be a faithful steward. He ought to be like a gentle mother. Tenderness and gentleness are marks of mothers, generally, right? At least they are in our home. We both love Nathan, and Nathan loves both of us, but every morning he likes to get up jump in bed and get cuddles from mom. Nothing like cuddles from mom. Those tender words and the tender touches that a mom has. It's interesting that Paul uses a feminine metaphor for himself. What he's trying to show is that we didn't pull rank as apostles could. In fact, we were like mothers who would nurture their children. And notice that he says, nursing mother. Nursing mothers... To me, that is like the epitome of self-sacrifice. Nursing mothers cannot be demanding. They are demanded upon. Those children cry because they need food, and the mom has to nurse them. The mom doesn't say, hey, let me tell you something. I'm the mom around here, and you're not going to eat right now. Get out of here. Grow up. No, it takes toil, labor, self-sacrifice, giving not only your words, but as Paul put it, your own life. 
And notice in the next verse it says, affectionately longing. Doesn't that describe a mom? When mom's away from her kids, she's affectionately longing for them. I've been overseas with my wife when Nathan was just a little guy, and I'll tell you what, that was the hardest week or two weeks in her life when she was separated from her child. That's all she could think about. It consumed her. It's one of the marks of a mother affectionately longing for her children. And so should a leader, a godly leader, be the same way. i got to tell you from my heart, I like to travel less and less. I remember when traveling seemed, ooh, awesome. I get to travel and other people are going to ask me to speak and I get to go. It's not fun anymore as much. really isn't. Uh, when you go to other places, people don't know you. They might expect some flash and then they hear you and they're disappointed. It's just you, when you're at home, people know you. They don't expect anything than what they hear every week and it's so much easier to be with those people. And every time I go anywhere else, I always say, I can't wait to get back home. There's nothing like a leader that God has raised up and the group of people that surround him and that love that flows between them. It's very much like this relationship of this gentle mother and the children. It's a great, great feeling. Well, let's go on. Verse 10. A leader ought to be like a nurturing father, a faithful steward, a gentle mother, and a nurturing father. Verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Now, what Paul does is he mixes the metaphors of a mom and a dad together. On one hand, you want to be gentle and nurturing and cuddly like a mom. On the other hand, there are times when you need to be stern, exhortive, uh, encouraging, instructive, and shape the values like a father would. In fact, Paul saw himself often as a spiritual dad. He called Timothy his son in the faith. He wrote to the Corinthians and he said, Though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you only have one father. I've begotten you through the gospel. So on one hand, he's a faithful steward. On the other hand, he's a gentle mom. And on the other hand, he's a nurturing father. Notice the word in verse 11, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly, that's verse 10, how you know we exhorted and comforted and charged. The word exhorted, and some of your Bibles say encouraged, the word exhorted is parakaleo, which means to call alongside someone else to edify them, to encourage them. Young kids need lots of encouragement because they get easily discouraged. You've all watched your children, they're growing up and they try something and they fail at it and they go, oh, I'm dumb, I can't do that. And they get discouraged easily. And you have to be there to say, yes, you can. I think you did a terrific job. Let me help you. Let's go for it again. Because they get easily discouraged, they need lots of encouragement. So are babes in Christ. And if you lead a kinship group, or you lead a large church, or you lead a family, or you're a corporate executive and you see those believers who work with you or for you or under you, who are discouraged, you need to come alongside as a father and provide that kind of encouragement. Then notice the word charged. The word charged. This is a little more formal. It's a word that is a little more um, forceful. On one hand, as a dad, we encourage. On another hand, we charge our children. The idea here is to testify to your kids of your own personal experiences which I have found kids don't always appreciate. 
You've all seen kids, especially teenagers, roll their eyes and get grimaced whenever their dad says, Now, when I was your age, they go, oh, here it comes. I've heard this speech before. But that's part of training. And it is a wise child who listens to the charge of a father, especially a godly father. They've been there before. Paul says, we've encouraged you, we've comforted you, and we have charged you. Now, to me, that's well-balanced leadership. All three of these are needed. There are times when you're a steward of the truth. Actually, you're always a steward of the truth. But there are times when you apply that truth gently, lovingly, because there's those who are weak and easily discouraged. There are those that you have to charge, you have to exhort, albeit in an encouraging way. And all three of these provide the balance of true godly leadership. If you are just one of these things, it's out of balance. If you're always like a steward uh, and you perform it like a duty, it's very perfunctory in the way you give it. Well, I'm here, it's my duty, there, bye. That's out of balance. If you're always like a mother to the people you lead, it's also out of balance. If it's always warm and cuddly and sentimental, you can have an unruly bunch. If you're always charging them and exhorting them, you can deplete them of the tenderness that they need. So we need truth, as we see with the faithful steward. We need tenderness, like a mother, and we need the temerity of a father. All three of these provide that balance. Now I want you to finally look at verse 12. We've seen what a leader should not be. We saw what Paul says a leader should be. And finally in that verse, this is what a leader wants others to be that you would have a walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The goal of a true leader is to bring the people that he leads to maturity so that instead of being dependent upon the leader, they become dependent on God and they have developed a healthy relationship with the Lord. They don't want to keep him at home forever. They want to see those children raised up and go out. When a child is born into the home, that motherly instinct takes over. She starts affectionately longing for them, nursing them, giving of herself. The father's there to encourage as he grows up, to charge him as he grows up. But eventually, you want to see that kid leave. Right? What healthy parent wants his child to always be at home? He's 45, still at home. And I want you to notice the word walk in that verse, that you would walk worthy, not crawl, but that you would walk. You remember what it was like when you first saw your child walk? How exciting it was? Did you say, oh, I wish you wouldn't walk? Now, in one sense, it's hard to see your kids grow up, isn't it? Oh, that tenderness, they're so sweet, and you don't want them to lose that innocence. But on the other hand, you really want them to grow up. You do. You'd feel like you're a failure if they didn't. First time your kid said, Dad, Dad, or Mama, to you that was one of the most exciting days of your life. You probably put it on video. Come on, say it again. Say it again. Mama, Dad, Dad. And you're filming all the way, and it's precious to you. But that was good for then. What if they did it 25 years later? You wouldn't be as excited, would you? A knock on the door. He comes home from school. Mama, the big bottle in his hand? He'd say, goodness, where have I gone wrong? 
It was good back then. It's on video, but not now. You want them to walk worthy of the calling which with they are called. And so John wrote in the, gospel, in the epistle of 1 John, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's always the mark of a godly leader is to raise up people who depend on God, not on the leader. It is an insecure leader who wants people to always depend on me. That's very insecure. And yet I've heard leaders threaten their people. If you ever leave this church, you're backslidden. Lay a guilt trip on them. That's very insecure and ungodly. One of the greatest marks of spiritual maturity is if they do leave the church and go on to affect other people in the world for Jesus Christ. That you'd have a walk worthy of the Lord. Paul said, Him we proclaim, that is Christ, and we admonish you that we might present every man perfect in Christ. This is what a leader should not be. He shouldn't be a dictator. He shouldn't be a people pleaser. He ought to be a steward. He ought to be a gentle mother and a faithful father. And then he wants others to walk worthy. One final thing, notice in verse 12. Worthy of God, notice who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The word call, calls you, is in the present tense. It speaks of a continual action. He didn't call you at one time. Today, he is still calling all of you. He's either calling you to salvation because you have not turned from a path of sin and followed Jesus Christ, or as a Christian, he's still calling you to higher levels of responsibility, accountability, service. It's a continual calling. Are you answering that call? Are you supple and open and willing to go? Are you hardened and recalcitrant and you're not going to follow the Lord's will? He's calling you. Respond to his call. Charles Spurgeon, I've quoted a lot in this message. I just love the guy. Everything I read about him or by him is awesome, just about. He said if he had one prayer that he was able to pray before he died, this would be it. Lord, send to thy church men filled with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Give to any church such men, and its progress must be mighty. Keep back such men. Send them college gentlemen of great refinement and profound learning, but of little fire and little grace, dumb dogs which cannot bark, and straightway that church must decline. He's not putting down refinement or learning. He's simply saying they have to have the fire of God and the grace of God, like a father, like a mother, being faithful stewards. 